Good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We are disciples of Jesus that make generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. My name is Aaron Lee Pastor. I am grateful to have you here with us today as we continue our series through the book of Isaiah on holiness and hope. Now, uh, obviously, it was part of our, our mission that we've got this vision to uh, help make disciples in this valley generationally, transformationally. Um, one of those, those things that we have is to, to do that are those five small steps. I just want to, invite, to remind us all of that as we continue to work together towards this. Um, and so on the front of your connection card, you'll see that's praying, and that's five days a week. And so uh, if you forgot to pray on the, uh, what to pray for, on the table out there in the foyer, there's the, one of these which lets us remind you of what we're going to be praying for each day of this week. And, um, and so make sure they pick up one of those. And it's been amazing to see how God answers prayer and how He will continue to do that as we lift those before him. So that's that. Um, attending, you're here, which is fantastic. Uh, but two of these uh, things, serving, bringing, and giving, I, I want you, we're, we're starting to track because we have some goals that we want to do to be able to start serving this community in a very transformational way. And one of those is serving. And our goal is ultimately we want to have 10,000 hours of community service as the name of Jesus for our community. And so what we'd like to do is just know this week, if you've served in a ministry like you've served because you were a Christian, uh, because of your faith, you went and served. If you would let us know that, and we're tallying those up. Last week was fun. It was the first week we got to see that. And uh, we had over 20 hours as a church that we put together and served people in our community because of uh, our faith, which is really cool. So just let us know just kind of how many hours maybe you've done uh, would be really good. And then um, bringing, if you invited a friend or a guest uh, this uh, last week, or you plan to do that this week, would you circle that? Let me know because I will be praying with you and, and support. Uh, so that way it's not just that the person will receive an invitation, but even more that God will begin to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel as they come. And this is uh, be a very helpful thing. Uh, so please do that. And then uh, let's get to this, uh, to our message. You know, um, as we go through Isaiah, but it's an amazing book where we have these themes of holiness and hope, uh, so timely. I think those are two things that are in short supply today. Holiness, to know who God is and why we worship Him and, uh, and really whom we approach. There's been a, a, a commonization of faith, the buddy Jesus approach, to realize to know who God truly is, all God and, the, and all man, and who He is, and to remind ourselves of that. But then also the hope. Now, we live in a time full of anxiety, don't we? I mean, I really, we do. And uh, to realize that our hope has never been in this place, this life. Our hope is in God. And today, as we go into Isaiah, that's exactly the message that we're, we're going to see. Now, if we start, of course, we remind ourselves of our memory verse for this series, Isaiah 6, 3. Where the angels around the throne, as uh, Isaiah has his call, and this is what they're saying to each other, the, the topic of conversation in God's throne room, where the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so what I do is invite you to join me as we just remind ourselves of this verse. If your first time with it, it's okay. We're just going to say it a few times. You're going to start to set it into your heart. And that becomes our foundation from which we get to talk about today's message. Okay, so here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. That's okay. You all sound like that's sad. No, it's good. Good news. God is holy. The world's full of His glory. All right, say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. All right, one more time just because it's fun. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah 6, 3. Oh, that's so good. It's so powerful. We remember who God is, it gives us courage to live the life he's called us to live, right? It gives us the courage to trust him because only God can do what God can do. And so I invite you to take that, if you haven't yet, to set this memory verse into your heart. We have a tool for you. It's on your connection cards right there. It's a little business card. Pull that off. Do business with God this week. Memorize it. Spend some time with it. And to remind yourself the amazing God that we serve. And as you do that, let's get into the book of Isaiah, which is what we're in right now, Whoop. and go to Isaiah chapter 7, 
And so that's going to be on page 477 if you have one of our Bibles. If you forgot your Bible, don't, forget, don't worry about it. We've got some in the back by the sound booth. You can use one of those. And if you need a Bible, just keep it. It'll be our gift to you. Now, Isaiah 7 comes right after Isaiah 6, which we were in last week, right? But it happens actually about 20 years later. Okay? So we have Isaiah when he gets the call in Isaiah 6, and he is before the throne of God. He has that call, who will I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, I'm going to send you, but it's going to be difficult. He says, how long? Well, until there's no one left. And so Isaiah goes and he begins to preach. And Uzziah, he begins his, his ministry under the king, King Jotham which was Uzziah's son, King Uzziah. And uh, like King Uzziah, Jotham was also a godly king. He worshiped God. The the nation uh, enjoyed a lot of prosperity. Uh, We find out that he was a king for 16 years, so he died young, unfortunately, but he did some really good things. And so the nation prospered. But one thing he failed to do, just like his dad Uzziah, is he failed to remove the high places, the worship on the outside of town. And so the holy people of Israel worshipped God, but not only God. And then after 16 years, there's another king. His name is Ahaz. And uh, unlike his fathers, Ahaz, not so much a good king. In fact, you saw 2 Kings writes about him, 2 Kings 16. says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. And I assign that it's interesting how God blesses us with prosperity and ease. That's one of the things he wants to give to his children, but it's usually an act of faithfulness. He doesn't want to bless us with prosperity and ease if it's going to drive us away from him. And oftentimes we find in life that it is suffering that drives us closer to God. Not that he desires us to suffer, but he wants us to know him. And we have this nation that was worshiping God and, and, and served him. You had two reigns of really great kings that lasted a good long while. And the nation of Israel enjoyed, a, or Judah, enjoyed a lot of prosperity. There was, there was a lot of wealth. There was a lot of security and all of these things. And so Uzziah built it up. The military was good. The economy was good. All that stuff was great. They had all kinds of progress happening. And then Uzziah dies and his son Jotham... Who, grew up in that prosperity. And Jotham also still worshipped God. He kept working towards what his father had started, and the nation did really good, but it was the grandchild of prosperity forgot God. His dad never knew a time when they were at war or where they were at a point of of just having uh, their economically just dependent upon God to to survive. And so this grandchild of prosperity, he forgets God. And we find how much did he, he not worship God? How did he not? Well, the very next passage tells us, and it was bad. It says he followed the ways of the kings of Israel. That was the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. And engage in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the, that time, there was a, worship, a, a Baal worship, and there was a type of sacrifice, and Baal worship was called a, a Moloch offering. Sometimes in older scriptures, they would say they worshiped Moloch, but it was a, a style of offering. And what they would do to this God, so this God would provide for them, uh, to provide for their grain and provide for all of the stuff that they would have, is they would build these idols, massive clay stone idols that were the image of this beastly God. And he would stand with his arms outstretched like this. And he had a hollow belly. And what they would do is they would, in that belly, they would build a, a fire and they would let it burn really, really hot till it started to glow on that. It was just coals and embers and the smoke would come out of the, the gods. It was looked very intimidating. And then to appease this God so that way he would allow there to be food for the nation, they would take their children and they would bundle them up and they would roll them down the arms of this Molech and they would, the children would go and they would be burned alive. That is what Ahaz did. As he stood right in, on the hillside of Jerusalem, 
You're going to see a map of Jerusalem here not very long. And there's two valleys. There's the Kidron Valley on one side. And that's where we find uh, this today's story takes place. It's where the Mount of Olives is on the side of and all that. There's a valley on the other side. It's on that valley, just on the other side of Jerusalem, as he could have looked right behind him and seen the, the temple. As he could have seen the, the, the faith of his people. As he could have seen the, the very presence and the, uh, and the power of God right behind him. He turned his back to that. And he rolled his son down into the belly of a beast. That's pretty depraved. This is Ahaz. Ahaz had gone into the worshiping. The, he said, you know what, there's, there's God here, but this, our God is a common God. He's like the gods of all the other gods. And, and Ahaz liked how religion looked in other places. So much so that we find another spot that we went to Assyria and they had, a, they had a, a, an altar in Assyria and he hired one of his, his servants to go up and take sketches so he could build that same kind of altar down in Jerusalem. Ahaz. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places that his dad and his granddad failed to take down. And under the hilltops and under every spreading tree, that's how faithlessness works. You know, for those... Uzziah generations that worship God and all that, but they tolerate infidelity to a God, and they allowed those things on the hilltop, destroy their own grandkids. That our God is holy, and there's consequence to not treating him as such. And here we have Ahaz growing up in prosperity, generations of prosperity, generations of peace, generations of respect from the nations around him, right? And he fails to remember who God is, and he treats God as though he is common. And so what happens? Second Chronicles fills in the rest of the story. It says, therefore, the Lord, his God, delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. The, Ar- the Arameans defeated him and took many of his people prisoners and brought them to Damascus. Because, therefore, that our God is holy, and we shouldn't treat him as common. And there were consequences from turning their back on it. And I think it's amazing how oftentimes we have prosperity. God blesses us because we're being faithful and good things happen and then we forget God. And then we do things that are absolutely against what God wants. And then we're shocked when bad things happen. And then we oftentimes blame him. Now understand what happened here. Let's take a look at a map. That purple area kind of near the bottom, that's Judah. That's the southern kingdom, right? And that's, that's where that's at. There's Judah, and then there's the capital of Jerusalem. It's right there on the border, and right north of it is Israel, the northern kingdom, right? And then where is Aram? Aram is north of Israel, and there's Damascus right there, where Damascus is today. And so you would say that God delivered Judah into the hand of Aram. There's only a problem with that is there's this country in between the two of them, Right? The Israel, the northern tribes, they would normally be a good buffer. You would think Israel would be an ally to the south, at least against the, the Arameans, right? How is it that the Arameans came down and took the, Judas, the, the, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, or of, uh, of Jerusalem, how is it they took them captive? Well, the very next passage explains. It says, he was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. In one Day, Pekah, son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers of Judah because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. 120,000. Now, just think about the wars we've been fighting the last 20 years in our country. Not even close to 120,000. And one day, they lost a lot of soldiers. And the world population was much smaller back then, by the way. Like, you can fit basically Israel and the state of New Jersey, right? There's a lot of people. And then we find later in the story, not only they lose 120,000 of their soldiers just in that one battle, but 200,000 women and children were taken captive from, from, uh, from the capital there, Jerusalem, and were marched up to Samaria as slaves, along with they emptied out the treasury and all of these things. So in one day... Israel loses 120,000 men, 200,000 women and children. That's 320,000 plus all of their wealth and all this kind of stuff. Why? Because Judah had forsaken the Lord. 
Does God take his holiness seriously? Yeah. The good times were over. Because the people had forgotten their God. And that's a big deal. Because remember last week, God is holy, holy, holy. He's different. And he's not going to put up with being treated different. Or being treated the same as other gods. And then God did something really amazing about that, that particular thing. And that one day where 120,000 soldiers were killed and 200,000 women and children were marched up out of Jerusalem and all of the things, there was this prophet in the northern kingdom. And he looks out his window and he sees all of these, these women and children being taken into captivity. And he knows who they are. They're coming right from Jerusalem. And he goes down and he challenges the leader of the, the armies. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. God delivered Judah into our hands because they had forgotten who God was. Now, this is hilarious because Israel, the northern ten tribes, were ten times as faithless as Judah. But here's this prophet, a faithful man in a faithless land, and he goes down to this army of, faithless, of a faithless land, and he goes to them and says, hey, the only reason you beat those guys is because God let you beat them because they were being faithless. And then he says to them, if you bring them, our brothers and sisters, these fellow Israelites, up here as slaves, God will do the same thing to us. And here was the miracle of God. They listened to him. And it says the fear of the Lord went throughout the army. And so all of those women and children that were being taken captive, the, the people of Israel taking them captive, they actually fed them, clothed them, and sent them back with all their stuff. So what the nation couldn't do, what the army couldn't do, God did. He protected them. And that happened just about a year and a half to two years before the story that we read today. And so it says in Isaiah chapter 7, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but could not overpower it. Well, here we have these, uh, these two nations that were going to march from the north, and they wanted to take over Israel. They're going to take Jerusalem. And it says, verse 2, when the house of David was told Aram has allied himself with Ephraim, Ephraim was another name for Israel. So is that enough names to confuse you? That southern portion of Israel, right where it's kind of circled there, it was called the land of Ephraim. That was given to the tribe of Ephraim. It says this tribe, right, this, the land of Israel, has allied with Aram, and they're going to come and attack you. And now you know the history of that. Just a year and a half earlier, they lost 120,000 soldiers, had their city sacked. And the only reason that they weren't in prison is because God sent a prophet. So, it says... Uh, it says, the house of David, that these people have, uh, Ephraim has, has allied himself to come down and, and to get you with Aram. And so it said, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as trees in the forest are shaken by the wind. They were like, ah! Like, we see the trees. We know what they like. In fact, last night. That's exactly what it's like. They were like, oh, no! And now you see Why? The city walls still weren't fixed from the last time they were invaded. They weren't able to beat these armies in their strength. Now they're weak. Do you see why Ahaz might have been a little freaked out? The people of Israel a little freaked out. They had these two armies coming from the north. Yeah, he wasn't being a drama king, right? He was, this was a big deal. He was nervous. But something else was happening. You see, above this land of Judah and above Israel and above Aram, there was another nation. It was called Assyria. And Assyria was growing in might and power, became one of the first of the great empires of the, of the, of the early world. And Assyria was violent, man. They were, they were brutal. And uh, they wanted economic power. And they got economic power by controlling trade routes, which happened to run right through here. So one great thing about the Middle East is it's in the middle, right? So you have Asia, you have Europe, you have Africa, and guess what's in the center of all of it? The Middle East. And guess what happens there? Trade. And there's this country to the south called the Kingdom of Egypt, which had a lot of wealth. 
And so there was a lot of trade going through there. And so Assyria said, we want a piece of that. And so the Assyrians were threatening Aram and Israel from the north. And so that's the economic climate that was happening at the time. And so what happened was you have Israel and Aram, right? You have, uh, you have the king uh, uh, from, from Aram and you have the king from Israel. And they get together and they say, hey, look, let's make a, let's make a, a, a unified front. Assyria is too big for one of us, but he's not too, that they're, Assyria is not big enough for both of us. So let's, let's make a coalition and we can keep the Assyrians north of us. And the thing was, is south of them, Egypt really didn't want Assyria to get too close. So you have, you know, Aram and, and Israel were kind of getting some support from Israel or from Egypt at the time. And so this is, they thought this was really good. The problem was, is Ahaz, he didn't trust God. And he knew that there was problem with Aram and Israel and they didn't like Assyria. So Judah, right, Ahaz, he went to the king of Assyria, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III. Can you imagine trying to spell that when you were three, you go to school? Tiglath-Pileser. He was the emperor of the Assyrian Empire. And so we have Ahaz goes up there and he makes a, 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 a treaty with him. And now he's pro-Assyrian. And so the problem was, is now Judah posed a threat on the southern border to this, this uh, unified front between Israel and Aram. That's why Israel and Aram wanted to go down into Jerusalem and have a regime change. They wanted to kick out the house of David, who was pro-Assyrian at the time, and they wanted to install a new king, a whole new line of kings that weren't related to King David. Do you see a problem with this? Yeah, God made a promise to the house of David. And so this plan that these other kings came up with was not one that was well advised because it went contradictory to a promise of God. And so God says something about it. Verse 3, it says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jehub, which is uh, Jashub, which actually means uh, the remnant will return. Wasn't that a great name to name your kid? To meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct in the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. And say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering shrubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and of Aram and of the son of Remaliah. So here we have, God sends a prophet, says, don't worry about it. To understand why? Here's Jerusalem, an artist rendition, as would have looked like in the time of Isaiah. And that northern portion there, you see the temple and the smoke coming up from that. And off to this side here on the, uh, I guess for us as we're looking at it, it would be our right-hand side. There's that valley there. That is the, uh, right there, it's the Kidron Valley. And on the north, the upper portion of it, that's where we see the Garden of Gethsemane. It would eventually be there, the, the Mount of Olives off to the side. And that's why, where they were, Okay. And on that wall, on that particular side, right there happens to be something called the, Kid, or the, the uh, Gihon Spring, which is the, a water source that would feed the city of Jerusalem. Problem with the Gihon Spring is it's outside the wall. That's why those towers are there. The people, when they built the walls, they built these mighty towers around the spring so that way they could get the water into the side and they could probably protect that. So where is the king right now? He's walking around, but where does, where does God tell uh, the prophet to meet him? on that road, on that side, right? And the reason why is because the king was looking at his defenses. And the weakest place in Jerusalem was the well, which is why later we have Hezekiah's tunnel and things like this before that. So the king's looking around, he's looking at his defenses. How are we going to withstand a siege from these northern kingdoms? How well are we doing? And while he's on that road surveying this wall and looking at their, their things, as he's right there, there's a field that's right below that that was called the Launderman's Field. And the reason they called it that is inside, where that spring goes inside, there are these massive pools. And before I went to Jerusalem, I always thought like the, the pools of Bethsaida, I always thought they were like, uh, like a kiddie pool, like you go to like a park or whatever, like little fountains. That's not at all. They're like massive, deep. I mean, they're like 20 feet deep and straight down and huge. There are lots of water, and they would store the water in there, and they'd use aqueducts, and they would divert the water to the rest of the city. Well, occasionally, what they would do is they needed to do maintenance, or they clean those things out, and they would empty out that water, and where would it flow? Down the hill, and guess what happened when they would empty out the water? People would go out and do their laundry. The laundryman's field, and that's where it was. 
So Ahaz meets the king right there, looking up at the defenses to the city. And so uh, as he goes there, he has a message. God says his message. He says, listen, here's your message that I want you to give to this king. And this is it. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Because sometimes in life, it is the time to panic. And for Ahaz, it was time to panic. He's looking at the city. It is no place. It is in no shape in order to defend against these two kings. They have already lost against them once. And so when it looked most ridiculous, God gives this prophet a message for this very unfaithful king who had done very unfaithful things. And God gives him a message of grace. Isn't that cool how God is? And look at his message. It's not, hey, freak out. It wasn't like, hey, be horribly terrified because of all these things that you've done. It was this. Be careful. Right? Verse 4. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Where is it to be careful? Ahaz had been very uncareful. He was not careful at all with all the things he did. He burned his son and worshiped to a pagan god. He worshiped all these other things. He was not careful whatsoever. The house of Ahaz had been faithless, but our God has been faithful. And so God met him there and said, you need to chill. This has nothing to do with what you deserve. It has everything to do with who I am, which is huge. And then God does a little smack talk, which I think is awesome. He says, you know those kings that you're also worried about? He says, they're just smoldering shrubs, burnt up sticks. Basically saying, they're just blowing smoke. That's what he's saying. These big kings who gave you pain just a year and a half ago, who did all these big things, they're all burnt out. Don't worry about them. Now, from a human perspective, Ahaz was looking up. They're like, they look like some pretty strong armies. And they don't like me. They want to do regime change because I'm lied with, with uh, Syria. That's where I put my trust. And God says, I know who I'm, and, I, and I'm not afraid. In fact, he puts it into perspective for them. He says, uh, Aram and Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear us apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Teriel king over it. They're going to remove the king of David or the lineage of David. And God says, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place. It will not happen. God's like, I have this. I am in control so much more than you think that I am. And I know they look strong and they look scary, but it's not going to happen. I will not allow people to undo my word. And then he tells them, hey, listen, the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Like here's this mighty nation. This mighty nation has a kingdom, right? Has, has, a, has a capital and the capital has a king and that guy is just a guy. But remember who our God is? Holy, holy, holy. He's the one who stays on the throne even when kings die. And he says, don't worry about him. God's big enough to handle any man. And he goes to Ephraim. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. And I think it's funny how he calls, you ever wonder why he calls him Remaliah's son? Pekah, Remaliah's son? Because Pekah was a usurper. Before Pekah was a king named Pekahiah, but they weren't related. Pekahiah was king, and then Pekah didn't like him. So Pekah, although he was an official in there, he had a coup. And he got some people who worked with him, and they connivingly tricked Pekahiah into a room, and then they stabbed him. And then Pekah became king. But God reminds Pekah that he's really not a king. He didn't have, doesn't have the kingly blood. He's just the son of Ramaliah. Who does he think he is? Usurper. God's not impressed. And God is not afraid. And so he reminds the king of the lineage of David, trust me, I'm not going to allow a usurper to take you. I'm not going to allow these pagan guys up on the mountains, away up the hills, away from you. They're not going to get you. They took you in the past because I used them to draw you to me. But I control them. And so verses 7 and 8, he tells us that we don't worry about these things. In fact, he says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Uh, that's pretty cool. But then he warns them this. He says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. Right? He gives them all of this thing and says, I am going to deliver you. 
These guys are only guys. I am God, right? I'm more than enough to make sure that you're safe. You're fine. But here's my warning, my invitation to you, Ahaz. I'm going to deliver you. But he says in verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. Ahaz was given an opportunity to trust God again. If you stand firm in your faith, Ahaz had been anything but a faithful guy. Wouldn't we agree? I mean, when you burn your kid to worshiping a pagan god and turn your back on the temple, pretty faithless. But God wasn't protecting Ahaz because he was faithless or faithful. He was protecting him because he's God. And God made a promise and God keeps his promise. But he invites Ahaz. He says, listen, you need to trust me in this. You think that your wall is going to protect you? You think this king from Assyria is going to protect you? Think again. I'm the God over all of them. Trust me. But if you don't trust me, there's going to be consequences. And there's a good message for us in that. And then he goes on. He tells us that 65 years later that those people that Ahaz is so worried about wouldn't even be a people. Other translators, and I think it's a better way of translating it, say six, even five years. Because that's that's also a good translation of that. Because in six, actually little less than six, five and a half years, what happened? Well, the Assyrian Empire ended up coming down and basically destroyed that, that wonderful uh, 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 the armies of, of uh, Aram and destroyed Damascus. Actually, the, the king of uh, Tiglath-Pileser even built a whole room in his palace talking about how he destroyed Damascus. And they came down and they took over Samaria and he installed a puppet king in Damascus. So these kings that that uh, Ahaz was so worried about, God says, in no time flat, they're not even going to be their own people. They're not going to be under self-rule anymore. Don't worry about them. Trust me. Trust me. And it's cool. History actually turned out. That's exactly what took place. And so God knows that as people, we don't have foreknowledge, right? We don't see the future. We see today. That's how he made us, right? We live in the fourth dimension and we're right here, right now. And so he tells Ahaz, I know you've been faithless. I know you've trusted all these other things so much so you're willing to kill your kids for them. Trust me. But I know you're asking that not just yourself are trying to trust me because they're going to come kill you. That's why these armies are going to come down. But also your whole, you know, the whole kingdom, uh, this whole city is going to be under siege. You're going to be bad for people. So I'm telling you to trust me, but I'm not just going to give you, say, have faith, have blind faith. God says, I want you to have reasonable faith. So he goes on this next thing, which is so cool. That God says in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, anything in the deep, deepest depth or their highest heights. God says, I want you to have a reasonable faith. Trust me, right? So ask and I will show you that I've got this. That's a blank check. Ahaz could have done anything he wanted. Guy lacked imagination. All right, anything. God says, trust me. But Ahaz had already chosen in his heart where he was going to place his trust. And it wasn't going to be in God. For him, he was spiritual, but not religious, right? He was like, I know I do all the spiritual things, but where was Ahaz's trust? In the emperor of Assyria. And so Ahaz tries, like a lot of people do, just to be spiritual. And he gives this response, verse 13. Ahaz says, um, verse 12 actually says, Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Oh, I think maybe building a Molech statue, an idol, maybe put God to the test. Maybe a little bit if you're worried about that, Ahaz. Or maybe going and worshiping on the high places, worshiping false gods. Maybe that was putting your God to the test. Maybe closing down the temple so that no one could worship there. Maybe that was putting God to the test. But now you're so righteous as you stand outside your city wall, as you look to the king of Assyria to save you. Now you want to be righteous? God knows your heart. God knows our heart. Don't hide behind false piety. That isn't. <laughs> so I love Isaiah says, verse 13, Hear now, house of David. It's not enough to try the patience of humans, but you now try the patience of my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to the son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This is a powerful passage. Ahaz was so, he had already put his trust in something wrong. And God says, even with your wrong-headed faith, 
even with your faithlessness, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not, God says, I am still going to protect you. That's grace. That's grace. Even though you are too self-centered to ask God for a sign, I'm still going to give you one. Even if you're not looking for a reason to have faith, God will give you one. And he does. And so what is the sign? Well, it's that wonderful thing that we read every single Christmas. And it says, uh, I'm gonna, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. You'll call him Emmanuel. Now, the first, this, is, this particular uh, prophecy had two fulfillments. The first one was in the day of Ahaz. He says, listen, there's going to be a young lady who's not even married yet. But she's going to be able to have a baby. And the fact that she's able to have a baby and still live in the land because you're not going to be taken over by the Assyrians and not going to be taken over by the, 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 by, the, um, by, by the people of Israel and not by the Armenians, <laughs> you're going to know that I redeemed you because right now it looks like you're doomed. But there's going to be a time, and that takes about 10 months or so, 10 months to a year. So within basically a year, you're going to be completely uh, redeemed from this. This, this problem is going to go away. You're not going to have to worry about these kingdoms of the north coming to attack you. And so by the time this woman has a baby, you're going to name that baby God is with us because the people will have seen God's deliverance. Isn't that awesome? And then in the New Testament, we recognize that God even gave us that same sign, that God is our deliverer. And what was the sign? A virgin conceived, gave birth to a son who actually literally is God with us. Isn't God poetic? It is amazing. And I think to understand that passage when we read about it of Matthew, to understand the context of Ahaz. When the world comes in and it looks like there's no hope, when the armies of the north stand and rage and it looks like they're just going to destroy you, when life comes in like a flood and there is no hope, our hope is in God and our God is with us. And he has a name. A virgin did conceive, and we do have a reasonable faith. And if we stand in that faith, we will stand. What a great thing. But uh, Ahaz, he didn't have that kind of faith. He trusted in the Assyrian Empire. And so God was going to keep his word. He wasn't going to allow Ahaz to be kicked off his throne and killed. So that way, God's promise for the lineage of of David would end. He was going to keep his word. And he says, I'm going to protect you. In fact, he goes on to say in this that this virgin is going to give birth to a son. He's going to grow and he's going to have a baby, but the peace is going to last more than just a year. Look what it says next. It says, when he will be eating curds and honey, when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose right. For before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And that's exactly what took place. Before a child knows wrong from right, in Scripture, would be 13 years old. That's when you have your bar mitzvah. It's when a young Jewish person becomes an adult. Before this young person, this baby turns 13. Before that happens, Aram and Israel will be no more. And you know what happened before 14 years had passed? Not only had the Assyrian Empire just totally destroyed Aram and Damascus, but Israel itself was completely captured, not only to having a vassal king, but by 14 years after this, completely destroyed. The northern ten tribes, gone. God's deliverance is powerful. He said, this is your sign, Ahaz. This is your sign, Judah. I protect you. But... They didn't trust only in God, so there was consequence. And so it's so interesting when you read this passage, you start with that and it sounds like, wow, God has really good news for Ahaz and it has nothing to do with what Ahaz deserves. That's grace. That's awesome, right? And I'm going to deliver you and those northern kingdoms are going to be no more. And so you think it's all going to be good, but then one verse later, it turns on a dime. And now there's bad news. And it says uh, in uh, what... uh, Verse 18, in that day, right, well, that same happens as God's going to deliver you, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. God's going to whistle for them. Like, they're, just, they're like uh, insects to God under his control. It, it, uh, we think Judah has got so much uh, respect for the kingdom of, of Egypt and the kingdom of Assyria. 
You think they're going to be so strong? God whistles for them like, like fleas and, and like bees. And they're going to come and, and they'll, all the, the, uh, they'll all settle in the steeps of the ravines and the crevices of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the watering holes. They're going to be like a, a pestilence over that land. And in that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and your private parts and to cut off your beard also. Basically, I'm going to use the Assyrians that you trust in to humiliate you. They're going to come down at my command and they're going to fill this land and it's not going to be pleasant for you and they're going to really humiliate you. But they're not going to kill you because God is still in control. They're just his hired razor. Assyria can only do what God allows them to do. They can't go one step further. They can humiliate you, Judah, but they're not going to end you. Because then it says in verse 21, In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of milk it gives, there will be curds to eat. And all who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. And in that day, every piece, uh, place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will only be briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, and the land will be covered with briars and thorns. And as for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, will no longer go there for fear of the briars and the thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. And that's a kind of a weird passage. What he's saying is this. You have all of this blessing. You have all this blessing because of me. But I'm going to bring in the armies from both sides and they're going to destroy. They're not going to destroy you, but they're going to make your life really hard. And because of that, what's going to happen to you is, is you're going to be humiliated. This society that you see Ahaz, that is the product of prosperity, which was built upon the faithfulness of your fathers, right? All of the city, all of the life, all of the comfort of things, the vines that you get to, to drink the wine from and all these things, it's going to go away. You're not going to die, but you're going to get a reset. You're going to be like the nomads who first inherited the land. You're going to eat curds and honey, which are nomad food, by the way. See, civilized societies eat the wheat from, from crops and fields. They drink wines from vineyards, but you're not going to get those anymore. In fact, there's not going to be farmers anymore. The great cities that you had, not going to have great cities for a while. I'm going to take away the wealth and all the blessing, but I'm going to bring you back to remember your faith so you can remember you can trust me. I'm going to humble you. And just a little over 100 years later, this is exactly what happened. That God said, I will protect you, but my protection is not like everybody else's protection. God wields the nations of this world and he controls them. <laughs> he is in control. And if we put our faith in the instruments, then our God will use those things to show us who's actually the one behind them. And God will bless us with great things that we can enjoy. There are blessings for being faithful. But if we use those blessings to turn away from God and pride and arrogance, he will give us a reset. And so the point of all of this, this chapter, is that God's protection is holy. And this is big for us. This is really big because God's protection isn't like anything else. Did Ahaz deserve God's protection? Did he do anything that would, would have made it so that we, you know, God would say to Ahaz, yes, you've been so faithful, I will protect you from these people? No. God's protection comes from who God is. It's an issue of grace. Today, we all took communion, those of us who are believers in Christ. When we take communion, we confess and proclaim the protection of God, don't we? That Jesus came and died for our sins. Did we deserve it? Did Jesus come because I'm such a nice guy? It is remarkable to me that God would want me in heaven. I know me, right? It is, it is absolutely astounding that God would say, hey, I want to, to be with you. I want to forgive you. I was still God's enemy. And he sent his son. God's protection is not based upon like we have in this world. We have alliances where uh, God will save me because I have something to give back to God. He's not like that. God's protection is based upon who he is, his intrinsic qualities, his character, his love, his faithfulness. Which is why every Sunday when we come, I don't have to be good enough to come to church. I come to church because my God is good enough. And he's given me grace. And he gives me love. And he gives me joy. And he gives me hope when I don't deserve it. I mean, there are so many times throughout just every single day where I fall short. And he still lets me become his spokesman. That is the mercy and the grace of God. 
And he's at work in your life too. You're his children. Not because you've done great things, but because our God has done great things. His protection isn't like anything else. He's not going to abandon you. There's no demon that can steal you away from God. There's no stupid, stupid thing that you could do that would cause him to reject you and turn away his love from you. Right? God is an amazing God. And I think we begin with this, is that his protection, even if you are as dumb as Ahaz, our God is brilliant and our God is good and his mercy is for you. But also we get to say this, that God's protection is holy and that he requires us to, be, to trust him purely. He's not going to reject us if we have two different things and somehow, you know, I, I trust God, but I also trust in myself, right? I'm not going to be cast away from the kingdom of God. I'm saved because of him. But there'll be consequences. There will be consequences. God is not saying it's okay to trust Assyria and the Lord. He says, trust me. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. To say this, is God powerful enough to protect you? I mean, Ahaz had real world problems, didn't he? He had real armies that really wanted to kill him with a real sword. That's a pretty big deal. That's a lot of stress. It's a lot of stress. And God says, trust me in the midst of that. He didn't say, wait till things get a little better and then you can try on the training wheels of faith. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, he says, trust me. If God could protect Ahaz from armies, can he protect you? Can he protect you today from whatever it is that's coming against you? Is our God strong enough to defend his people? Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? And it's not because we deserve it, because our God has given us a promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So can we trust his ability to protect us? Because his protection is holy. We don't make alliances with God. We serve Him. We're part of His family. And God is faithful, even when we're not. But He calls us to faithfulness because there's a blessing to it, isn't there? Ahaz could have simply just asked for a sign. He could have said, okay, I want a sign. How about having all the gold in the world appear right here? God said anything in the world. He could have had it. How about having those two northern kingdoms just be swallowed up into the dirt right now? He could have had it. Anything in heaven and earth. But he trusted himself. But God has given us an even better sign. He's given us himself. He put flesh on, walked amongst us. We don't have to wonder, does God exist? God became a human and showed up and did things only God can do. He healed people. He, he raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. He, he quieted storms. He did all kinds of stuff in front of thousands of people. And the best thing is he conquered death itself. And there is an empty tomb somewhere because our God's, well, he's bigger than death. He's given us reason to believe. And so we have our sign, a virgin conceived. And our deliverance is real and our God's protection is solid. And so we need to place our faith in God. That's the point, isn't it? As Christians, as followers, as brothers and sisters of faith, don't we have reason and hope that we can place our faith in God? Not in this current day and age, not in, in the things that we have. Can we really trust God? Is our God real and is he powerful? Yes. So let's trust him. Let's not walk around the walls of our city and say, oh man, I hope that we can take care of this. I hope we have the right alliances. I hope the right people are in office. Our God is on the throne and we are his children. And he has said, I've given this world to you. So let's Walk in power in this world and the grace of God. Let's have the ability to forgive those who need forgiveness and to care for those who need caring and to bring conviction to those who need conviction. Can we do it? Can we do it? Yeah. You know, we need to trust God and God alone. Jesus talked a lot about this. In fact, if you your Bible, just briefly, I want you to see where Jesus talked about this. Matthew chapter 6, one of the greatest sermons ever preached because Jesus preached it we find that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and what it means to walk in that kingdom, to be part of that kingdom. And he gives us something that I find so freeing and also made me a little nervous when I was early uh, as a believer. Verse 24, it says, Jesus says to us, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other. 
You be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more than food or the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Any one of you, by worrying, can you add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans run after all those things. Now, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What comforting words are that? You know, Ahaz, he had Aram. Ahaz had Israel. He had Pekah, son of Ramaliah, breathing down his, his neck. And so Ahaz turned to where he thought his power was. He turned to Assyria. He turned to Tiglath-Pileser. And God still delivered him, even in spite of it. There's consequence. He missed out on the greater blessing. So did the people. What God wanted from Ahaz was to turn his heart to say, I trust you. What a different story this would have been. Ahaz had Tiglath-Pileser. Americans, we have Benjamin Franklin. We got money. And I think Jesus talks about that a lot, doesn't he? It's common for people. We look to what we can control, what power we might have that's going to rescue us in our day of disaster. And that's why Jesus says you can't have two, two saviors. You can't have two kings. What's going to happen is you're going to be divided in your heart. You're going to be like Ahaz. And there's consequence. And so Jesus invites us to trust him. He's given us a sign, a virgin conceived, and he says, trust me. Trust me. Not your economy. The stock market goes up or down. Do you think that God's big enough to take care of his children regardless of our stock market? He says, trust me. Our God knows what you need. Don't be like a pagan that runs your entire life worried about how am I going to provide? What am I going to do? Be faithful with the opportunity God has given you and trust him. Trust him. And enjoy the peace. Be calm. The deliverance of God is with us. Just why this month we've been talking about, if we talk about God's holiness of peace, we've been talking about tithing. We've done our tithe challenge as part of it. That's the point of it. It's keeping God as holy. It's remembering Him as our Savior. And we've got some folks at our church. Last Sunday, I heard a little of their story, and it was so good because it really illustrates this point well. It's Larry and Sherry, and so uh, I'm going to share your story. Uh, they uh, allowed them to take video of it. So I want you to hear this. The power of God when we trust Him. Hi, we're Larry and Sherry Strong, and we have been um, married 41 years right mm -hmm. <laughs> and anyway and so we were going to give our um, tithing testimony how we started tithing and my parents were tithers and um, but um, when we first got married we didn't tithe we gave but we did not tithe because like most young marrieds we didn't have a lot of money and so um, we thought that was a good reason to not tithe. But anyway, um, we had our own business and there came a time in the business where we uh, had a great financial need. And I don't mean just little, it was very great. And at the time we were in a small group and so we um, asked our small group to pray for us and someone in the small group said, um, you are tithing, right? And we're like, what? <laughs> so anyway, so they suggested that that would be a good place to start with putting God first in our finances. And we thought, well, that doesn't make sense because like now we're, we're going to have less money. We're broke. <laughs> we're going to have less money. So, but we prayed about it. We felt like, yes, this is what God wants us to do. And it was a real step of faith because we didn't know how it was going to turn out. Um, and so we did. And in our case, 
you know, not like everybody, but in our case, um, God completely turned the situation around. And it was, even from an attorney's point of view, it was like an impossible to rectify situation. And it was an absolute miracle what happened with our us. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, God does take care of his own. He took mm -hmm. care of us. In fact, even from a legal perspective, it was an impossibility and it turned out to be a miracle. God had favor, you know, had mercy on us. And, and uh, so we learned and we've been tithing ever since then. So you had a couple of points you wanted to make. Yeah, I guess I'm reminded of the, uh, the product, the, the, the fine print in the product that says results may differ. Yeah, uh, you know, right. so, you know, our experience will probably be different than yours. But, um, you know, the older I get, uh, both just in life and as a believer, um, the more I realize that these are not complicated concepts. Uh, tithing is not a complicated um, principle. Um, but first, we have to understand, we have to, we have to understand why we are called to tithe. And so understanding scripture, uh, and Aaron obviously has done a great job of, of enlightening all of us about um, tithing from God's perspective. And, and God does say to trust him, uh, to test him, actually. And so um, uh, we, ha we, have to, we have to understand it. We have to actually, in our head, understand what tithing is all about. Um, and then we get to make the choice as to whether or not we believe it. Mm -hmm. And so we first have to understand it, and then we get to choose how much we believe it. And how much I believe it is going to be somewhat proportional to how much, how much faith I have <laughs> to obedience. But my obedience is, is going to be directly proportional to how much I trust. Mm -hmm. And so tithing is a, is, a, is a knowledge issue. Tithing is a faith issue, a trust issue, and an obedience issue. We can call it what it is, but it's not complicated. It's not necessarily easy, but it's not complicated. It's all a matter of surrendering and trusting. And I, I think I've said this before. If we can't trust God with our finances, then what can we trust God with? Yeah. Yeah. So I would encourage all of us to double down and realize that, that God is big enough, um, a big enough of a God to be able to take um, our tithes and, um, and take care of us. Whether our tithe is small or whether it's big, it's the first 10%, which is enough. And so we would encourage all of you as mm -hmm. brothers and sisters in Christ to take that step of faith and obedience and first. do what it is that God has asked, and that's to yeah. put God first. Mm -hmm. well, I thank Larry and Sherry for sharing that testimony. You know, like they said, results may vary. Some things do vary. Like when Amy and I first started tithing, it was a real step of faith, and we didn't have it, and then things got worse, but God was faithful. We never missed a meal. We never missed a payment. We never missed any of Amy's meds. She never missed a day at the hospital that she was supposed to be there. God took care of us. And then the time of blessing came. And I'll say this, the result that doesn't vary is God's faithfulness. He will care for you. But the thing is, you got to put him first. That's why seek first the kingdom of God. Then all those things will be given to you. So that's why I'm going to challenge. If you're here today and you've not ever tithed, or maybe you're not now, join us this next four months. I want you to see I want to invite you to put God first and to trust Him. We're, we've got over a dozen families right now that are a part of it. Come along with us. Put God first. Treat Him as holy and His things as holy and see what God does. Stand firm in your faith. That's what we want to be doing. And don't just do it about money. Make sure it's worshiping God with everything that you are, centering your life on Him, making sure there is only one master in your heart and your life. That's what we want to encourage you to do. If you would like to do that on your connection card, this is what I would like you to do is is write TC for Tithe Challenge. Make sure I have your name and your email address because I'm going to send you some information. I'm also going to be praying for you as you go through this thing. And, uh, and I'm protecting God's protection over you too as you go through this time. It's a challenge, but it's also amazing. And it'll be interesting to see what God does. For the rest of us, I want you to take your connection card as well. Whether you're already tithing or not, uh, like Amy and I, we've decided through this four, uh, these next four months, we're stretching ourselves. God is uh, giving us the ability to make sure that we are uh, going above and beyond what we've normally done in the past, and it's been a challenge of faith and uh, putting God first, our trust in Him, and it's been interesting to see already how He's done some cool things. But for everyone else, also, we have other commitments that I want you to take. Next steps, to see God, put Him first, trust in the Lord and His protection. So the first thing to do is to memorize Isaiah 6.3. 
Can you remind yourself every day that God is holy, that he's different, he's not like other things, he's not a self-help manual, this is not a club, our God is a real God, and he protects his people, and he loves us. Maybe you remember that. How about this? If you want to read Isaiah uh, 12 through 23, that's going to be the next uh, um, 11 verses. So by the end of the series, you'll have read all the way through the book of Isaiah. Um, So if you didn't get to do that last week, you can go all the way through 23 if you want to. It's a great book. How about this? Maybe you need to choose God's protection. This is what I'd like you to do. Last week, I invited you to have an introspective talk with God, to look at your priorities and see if they match God's priorities as we look at holiness. This week, I want you to take that conversation with God to that next step and look in your areas of your life, ask Him to reveal the areas that you are trusting Him and the areas where you're trusting anything but Him. If you have a Tiglath-Pileser in your life, ask God to reveal Him.